Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I am your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well tonight, Pete. Thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Tonight, we have a really special episode for you. We have Dr. Jerry Williams as a guest. Dr. Williams is one of the most accomplished shoulder surgeons in this country. He's currently at the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia. He served as president of the ASES, of the AAOS. He's authored over 70 publications, and he's won the Nero Award three times. Dr. Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Why don't we start at the beginning? Tell us how you came to work at the Rothman Institute. Well, uh, it was around 2007. Um, I had been at the University of Pennsylvania for the better part of 17 years. Um, and over the years there, um, I'd been approached a couple of times by people at Rothman uh, to at least consider joining them. Uh, the time never seemed right, um, but around 2007, um, I felt like my practice had uh, gotten to a point where I needed a little bit more independence in my life. Um, and as a result, I began to look at Rothman a little more seriously. Um, and as a result of some things uh, at Penn that were going on at the time, I wound up um, leaving um, and going to, to Rothman. And, uh, and I've never really looked back. It's been a great experience for me. Dr. Williams, what makes Rothman a unique practice relative to other private practices, other universities, other so-called private-demics places? And what has, um, you know, we, we just heard how, how you got to be there. What has kept you there for so long? Well, I think, um, I mean, I I really didn't start Rothman. So I'm, I'm one of those people that really took advantage of a situation that was present long before I got there and was able in some way to help them make it better, I hope. Uh, but one of the things that I think Rothman is unique about, uh, there are other privademic places, but not very many of them do uh, clinical medicine, um, teaching, and research quite on the same level as we do, I don't think. Um, and again, this predated me for by a long ways, but um, you know, if you look at the number of articles written a year, if you look at the number of presentations a year given at major uh, meetings like the American Shoulder and Elbow um, Surgeons Meeting, annual meeting, or the, the Academy meeting, um, Rothman is often at the top, if not within the top two or three uh, groups uh, in terms of academic productivity. Certainly, we're in the top three or four or five groups in terms of uh, clinical productivity. Um, and we um, basically um, run a, a residency um, and have multiple fellowship programs and multiple disciplines. So I think if I had to um, sort of um, boil down our, our real uh, secret sauce, I think it's um, in the way that we, that we mix academics, teaching, and research um, at the level that we currently do it. And many of our listeners are trainees or early career surgeons who have just finished fellowship and are in the first few years of their career. 
as you've you know seen throughout your career, you've worked with a lot of trainees, of course, and you've seen new surgeons start their career at Rothman and, and flourish. What advice do you have for our listeners who are starting out in their careers in their first couple of years and even those in their first five to 10 years? What, what would you advise them? What are some of your pearls? Well, I mean, some of them are pretty obvious. I mean, you, you want to go and, and work as hard as you can um, pretty much from day one. Um, you want to be the best you can be in every aspect that you plan to practice. And I mean, academics isn't for everybody. Um, and I think what you need to decide first as a young surgeon is what really floats your boat. Um, do you want to be involved in teaching? Do you want to be involved in administrative leadership activities? Or do you really just want to do lots of cases and be the best shoulder and elbow surgeon you can be? Uh, and I would just um, give people the advice that once you've decided in your own mind what you want to be, go for it a thousand percent, be the best you can be. I think one of the questions that I hear a lot, particularly from some of the younger surgeons, um, is how you balance um, wanting to be the very best you can be at your job um, with a personal life that um, allows you to maybe raise a family or at least do things in your life that are also productive, but maybe in a different way. And to be honest with you, that's hard. Um, and I think it's different for different people. Um, for example, when I first started, um, what was important to me in the very beginning was just to work as hard as I could and be the best I could be. And really, I didn't think much about anything else. Um, and to be honest, my kids are now uh, 30. I'm going to get this wrong. I think I think they're 35 and 37. Um, and the years that I lost with my kids when they were young, uh, doing all the things that I did, are years that you never get back. Um, and so if I had to do anything over again, I might have given more thought to all the level of things in my life that were important to me and maybe tried to be a little bit more um, even-handed with regard to how I spent my time. So, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to figure out what that balance is. But I think if you as a person starting out in your younger years of practice, at least start out with a concept that it's important to you to know what that balance is and to try to do the best you can with it and sort of revisit um, where you think you want to be in the next five years in all aspects or spheres of your life, you'll be better off than most people and certainly better off than uh, I was when I started. Do you think that's changed about our career over time? I mean, I, I, it's so interesting to hear you say that, and I, I think it's so hard to find that balance. When you look at young surgeons now, do you feel like they prioritize differently, or do you think things are largely the same as they were? I think uh, there is an element of young surgeons prioritizing differently. I do. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's generational. Uh, maybe it's the result of the way things have gone in medicine in general. You know, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that are different with regard to number of hours of call you take a day, uh, number of hours residents work a week, number of hours surgeons work a week. There's a, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of differences. Uh, between where I started off and where and where it is now, but I I think that there's the, the question is still the same. Uh, it might have different parameters, um, but I think the question is still the same. Uh, what's really important to you, and what's the mix between your personal life and your professional life that makes you and whoever you're going to spend the rest of your life with the happiest? And so, the, as I said, the parameters might be different, and the rules might be a little different, but I think the challenge is the same. 
You know, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear you reflect upon your time, you know, in multiple institutions. And one of the things that I think is interesting about your career is you've been, you know, at the forefront of shoulder arthroplasty for a really long time. And I'm sure you've seen a lot change. What, tell us about what that's been and what do you think the future looks like for shoulder arthroplasty? What have we forgotten from the past that we need to remember? Well, I can tell you without any question, without, without any hesitation, um, the biggest and most profound change in shoulder arthroplasty in my career is the advent of the reverse shoulder replacement. Um, I can tell you that I was involved from a very early age um, in innovation within arthroplasty. I really got there uh, through my mentor, Dr. Rockwood. Um, and I can tell you that when I and other leaders um, in that field were asked our opinion about whether or not a company should look into buying the French company that had first come up with a reverse arthroplasty, and if so, what percentage of the market did we think it was going to take? Was it going to be a niche product? And I think to a person on the design team that I was on at the time said, well, it's probably got some benefit. I mean, there are some patients who don't really have good rotator cuffs that probably don't have a lot of good options, and maybe this would be a good option for them. But we didn't see it, you know, maybe 10%, maybe 15% of the market. Uh, and we're now at 50% of the market and growing. Um, and I think it's partly because I and others totally underestimated um, what the impact of reverse arthroplasty was going to be um, in the management of shoulder pathology. Totally, totally got it wrong. But I think in addition to that, um, it was a good concept that has been made better um, over the years. And as a result, um, really has results now that are way better than they were when it first started. So um, I think that without question is the most important um, innovation since I've been in practice doing shoulder arthroplasty. Um, if I think of some of the things that uh, we sometimes forget about shoulder arthroplasty, uh, I really do think that uh, Nier was a very gifted surgeon um, and what he brought to the table that has tested the, that has stood the test of time more than anything else um, is the concept that this is a, the, at least anatomic shoulder arthroplasty, maybe more to an extent than it's given credit for reverse arthroplasty, is really dependent upon management of the soft tissues at the time of surgery. Um, and near, near really and truly, um, I think, put that on the map. And when he first, first started doing arthroplasty, it was done uh, through either a takedown partially of the deltoid origin or insertion. Um, it was a much different operation. And so I, I think those are the things that we sometimes need to remember. And even reverse shoulder replacements, people, people talk about the soft tissues being less important. Um, and that probably is true to an extent, but there are some effects on the way reverse arthroplasties work that can be changed by having poor tissue um, tension or tissue tension in the wrong way. Um, so I think that management of soft tissues and realizing that almost any of these operations we do for shoulder arthroplasty really are a function of soft tissue management is something that we um, would do well to remember. And then finally, I guess with regard to future, um, I don't think there's any question that reverse shoulder is here to stay. Um, I'm of the opinion uh, that anatomic arthroplasty will make a comeback. And I think it will make a comeback for a couple of reasons. Number one, in patients that have a good cuff 
and bone deformity that's reconstructable. I, I think that it will become clearer and clearer that you, if you know how to do a good anatomic arthroplasty, it's a better result. Um, I think one of the things that anatomic arthroplasty suffers from, and I think one of the things that has made reverse so popular, is management of bone defects on the glenoid side with a metal fixation system is far superior um, to polyethylene. So I think that the big breakthrough in anatomic arthroplasty will probably come uh, when some form of alternative, fi alternative fixation to bone that allows one to manage bone deformity better uh, comes about. And I don't think we're too far away. I would say within five to 10 years. Um, so, I, and I also see the trend towards stemless um, arthroplasties uh, continuing. Um, and I, usually the way things work like this is the pendulum swings and swings, and sometimes it gets a little too far the other direction and then corrects. And that'll probably happen with reverse arthroplasty, it'll probably happen with stemless to a certain extent, but I think both will be here to stay. The final thing I would say about future is bearing surfaces may become pretty important. Um, Cross-link polyethylene has really helped um, polyethylene wear, at least um, I believe it has, and there's data to show that. But I think we can even do better than that. Um, and I think we'll probably, again, follow slightly behind our hip and knee colleagues who have uh, found alternate bearing services that are more usable in, uh, and more durable in younger patients. And I could see that happening as well. So much insight. I think our listeners will really, really appreciate this. You know, changing gears, when, when you reflect back on your time as president of both ASES as well as AAOS, what were some of the challenges you faced with your role in each society and how did you overcome them? And what do you see for the future of both of these societies? Kind of a loaded question, so feel free to take it in pieces. So I'll go with ASCS first. I was president of ASCS a lot longer ago than I was of the academy. And I think that there were really two challenges um, among all the ones that I encountered the two that I think stood out the most and were probably the most important were the push by some of our other upper extremity colleagues to um, establish a upper extremity type um, curriculum that basically um, put us together with up other upper extremity surgeons to have fellowships that weren't necessarily just focused on shoulder or elbow, but maybe the entire upper extremity. And we worked with the hand societies uh, to try to get that done. Um, and it, I think it never happened for a couple of reasons. The first was um, that I think that the, the value of somebody who, for just take me for example, um, we have nine people on our shoulder and elbow service and I'm the only one that does only shoulders. Um, but I can tell you that if you compare the way I look at shoulder problems, particularly arthroplasty, in comparison to somebody who just does generalized upper extremity surgery. Not, not to sound uh, arrogant or anything, but the bottom line is I spend every waking moment just about thinking about shoulder arthroplasty and doing it. And there's no way that somebody who does it as a part of some other thing in the upper extremity could ever do it as well. It's impossible. And if outcome is important, 
uh, that will always have value. The second reason was, quite frankly, it was a turf war to a certain extent at the time. Um, and I think that we uh, in the Shoulder and Elbow Society might have been protecting our turf a little bit, and the hand surgeons might have been protecting their turf. And in the end, um, I think it contributed, that turf war continued to, contributed to a certain extent to it not happening. Um, the second issue, I think, was an existential issue for the, for the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons. Um, and that had to do with whether or not we wanted to remain a very small elite society or whether we wanted to become a much larger society to fulfill our mission of wanting to be the go-to society for uh, research and education and clinical activity in the shoulder and elbow. And uh, the first person who took a swing at taking it, uh, making this a lot of uh, the ASES a lot bigger was Bernie Mori. Um, and for whatever reason at the time it just wasn't well accepted and the um i think the philosophy of most of the people in the organization at the time or at least those that had a lot of influence was that um, it was very special to become asked to be a member of the american shoulder and elbow surgeons because it was such an elite group that when you got chosen you were really being recognized as somebody in the very upper echelon of your career and that was the way people wanted to keep it um, the second swing at it was me, uh, the year that I was president, and I think we were a little farther along in, in wanting to see ourselves as a larger society that could compete with, say, ANA, American, uh, the Arthroscopy Association of North America, the Sports Medicine Society, the hand surgeons, um, and we almost got there. Uh, we got to the point where I think people accepted that it was good to get big. They hadn't really accepted what form that might take. And I think that there was enough consternation after the year that I left as president that it just didn't have enough momentum to get carried. And then the final person that I think finally got over the finish line to his credit was Bill Mallon. Um, and it really and truly changed the way that American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons looked as an organization. We are a much larger, more, much more comprehensive organization that I don't think anybody could argue is if, if we're not the strongest um, educational and clinical organization for shoulder and elbow surgery, we gotta be in the top one or two. It, we've, it really has transformed our society, and at least in my opinion, uh, has put us in a position to be strong for the, for the decades to come. Trade-off is we've lost some of the feel of a small organization in which everybody knew everybody else, uh, and it was sort of a unique club. Um, but I think the price is worth it, and I think that the possibility was that we, we could have made ourselves so elite that we extinguish ourselves. So I think that, that was the second issue. The first issue was the issue of upper extremity surgeon versus a shoulder and elbow surgeon, and the second issue was what does the ASCS want to be? The academy was totally different. Uh, the academy at the time is just a huge organization. It still is now, but you know, I, I really didn't realize um, how much work um, went into it uh, to be in the presidential line of the academy. And I also, even though I've always been a big academy fan, I don't think I ever became more convinced um, that the academy was the organization that orthopedic surgery in general needed to embrace to keep ourselves at the forefront of taking care of patients with musculoskeletal disease without being infringed upon by government and other organizations. Um, and I just think that that's never been truer. 
Um, some of the things that came across my year that um, were a bit of a challenge, there were a few. Uh, the first was, and this was my first day as president, um, you may remember um, the concurrent surgery debacle um, that started in Boston. Um, the first year, the first day that I was uh, president of the academy, I was called by the leader of the American College of Surgeons at the time, uh, and we were asked to sign on to their policy that had been drafted and approved by the entire House of Surgery except for us on the policy for uh, concurrent or um, really concurrent surgeries, not, not the right word, because concurrent surgery happening at the same time is, is really not legal under most circumstances. So it's really overlapping surgery. And it became apparent to me that in the current form that it was in, it would never have um, been good for orthopedics in general. It would have totally changed the way that residency is, is performed throughout the United States. Uh, and fortunately, um, myself and the rest of the presidential line, especially Bill Maloney, um, sat down with the uh, leader of that organization and really hammered out a policy that we thought we could live with. Um, and that's the policy that eventually was uh, presented to Grassley's committee and was um, basically taken forward by the American College of Surgeons. So that, that was the first big one. Um, the second big one was a real shocker. Uh, Karen Hackett, who as you may remember, was the CEO of the Academy for many, many years. Um, and she told me my third month into my presidential year that she was retiring and I needed to hire another CEO. Um, and obviously that was a big decision. Um, and although the academy at the time was what we thought was in pretty good shape, financially I think things were changing a little bit. Um, and I think the world around the academy was changing a little bit in terms of what the academy needed to become, what things should be important, um, et cetera. So I think Karen realized that it was time for her to move on, and we had to come up with um, a slate of people and, and pick the person that we thought was the correct person uh, to be the next CEO, and obviously we had a committee to do that. But that was probably my second biggest challenge, um, and I think uh, it's been borne out that I think we've made a decent choice. Nobody's perfect, but I think Tom Aaron's been spectacular. If you look at his uh, performance financially, um, organizationally, I think he's done a very good job. And so that was that was a, the second big one. And then the third big one sort of came at the end of my year and really transitioned into Bill Maloney's year. And that was uh, the push by the AAOS membership to come up with a pathway for maintenance of certi certification that did not rely on a 10-year high-stakes exam. And um, I put a task force together and made Bill Maloney the head of it. Uh, and that was sort of at the end of my year, right at the end of my year. And um, after a lot of consternation and a lot of uh, gnashing of the teeth and meeting um, and arguing, uh, the Academy and the ABOS were able to come to a resolution uh, and the new pathway, the longitudinal pathway for maintenance of certification that does not rely on, in fact, that you don't take the 10-year high stakes exam has become very popular um, and that's really to be honest 90 percent of that um, I mean the ABOS and the AOS had to want it to happen but it was a bit it was a heavy lift and Bill Maloney really should receive a lot of the credit for it those things seem obvious now but I'm sure at the time they were not easy discussions 
you know what you you don't realize how true that that really is um it's it's that is true it's easier to look back on things having already been through them um and articulate how it went much easier than it was at the time um so uh you're right about that it wasn't as obvious in the beginning when it was happening as it was at the end which to be honest is true of many big decisions that you have to make not only professionally but in your own life um you know we're all presented with decisions we have to make every single day in fact multiple times a day and sometimes the right decision is not that obvious until after you've made it and you get a chance to look back on it I did not know that 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 change in the longitudinal assessment came from the academy. I think that's a huge step forward for our recertification, which is obviously such an important part of us maintaining our, um, you know, maintaining the surgeon workforce. One of the questions I wanted to ask you about was the concurrent surgery, because that actually has been a big change for our trainees and not necessarily a positive one. How um, has that changed? Did that did, has that changed the way that you guys do things at Rothman? Are things the same? Tell me how you've worked around that to continue to provide a good educational experience for your trainees. Well, um, I think the challenge for the policy that we finally agreed upon with overlapping surgery was to realize that there was value in overlapping surgery for a number of reasons, but there were some potential issues that could compromise patient care if they weren't handled appropriately. And in the end, all of us, both the American College of Surgeons and the Academy, in the end, what we're here for is to provide the best care we possibly can for our patients. That's what we're here for. Um, and so we felt like some of the compromises that were made were things we could live with, such things as uh, the tough ones are having to have um, a surgeon available, whatever that means at the time. But available really means available. They can't be uh, in a plane. They can't be in their car driving to their shore house. They, they really do have to be available on campus if one of the rooms that the surgeon left to start the key, the key portions of a second operation when the key portions of the first operation are over might have to go back because something happened. Um, that's, that's the one that was, um, I think, the biggest um, hurdle. And the way that we do it at Rothman is um, at every place that we work, um, there is either a clinic or an office area that's either adjacent to the operating room or in the same building uh, where a person takes the responsibility for being the um, surgeon if one, one ever needs to go back to the operating room to a case in which the key portions have finished, but there's an attending surgeon needed um at that particular room second way to handle it um is i just give an example one of the hospital systems that we work in fellows that are basically accredited by the acgme and paid for by the institution are looked at as pg6 uh, residents and therefore can't be completely independent in the operating room they can't be the other surgeon uh to, to be available if they're one needed to be but if, you're, if your fellows are paid for by you and are done with their training and get credentialed as an attending surgeon, then they can be one of those surgeons. Um, and that can make it a little bit more um, palatable. And I think the other thing, which I really think is the right way to do it, and sometimes, in fact, many times wasn't done this way, I think the patient needs to understand what having surgery in multiple rooms is about 
what you being a member of a team is about and that you are doing and responsible for the key portions of the operation. I think having a, an honest, tran transparent conversation with patients about it is one of the things that the American College of Surgeons really um, demanded. Uh, I think they were right to do so. Um, and I think that the policy as it currently exists is a little more restrictive than it was, but maybe it should have been. Uh, and I still think it's possible for us to train residents under those circumstances. Um, and you know, I'm not going to say it doesn't provide some challenges, but I think those challenges are worth taking when you realize that we have a dual role. Our role primarily is to provide the best patient care we possibly can. We're also required to train the next generation of surgeons, but I think our responsibilities sort of fall in that order. First, best patient care. Second, train the next generation of surgeons. And I think uh, thoughtful people have figured out a way to manage it, and, and I think it works reasonably well. The other question I wanted to follow up with you about is you, you mentioned the change within the ASES to become a larger, more inclusive organization. You know, you've been to a lot of these ASCS annual meetings over the years. That's traditionally been a closed meeting, which is, I think, for a long time been somewhat unique. Has that has that changed your enjoyment of the meeting? Do you have fond memories from the meeting? Tell us tell us a little bit about your experiences there. Well, it certainly changed it. I mean, there's no question that the biggest negative um, is that we lost the flavor of the closed meeting. Um, there was something special about being in a room that contained only people like Charles Rockwood, Charles Neer, um, Rich Hawkins, um, Russ Warren. I mean, the people who got up and presented papers and argued with each other were people like that. There was there were people like that and other people who were almost like that or wishing to be like that. And it was a really small room and it was a very special feeling. And we have lost that to a certain extent. Um, and yes, it, it it's something I miss. Uh, but if I look at it from the standpoint of what it's meant to the longevity of the organization by having an organization that has become the dominant or a dominant player in clinical medicine, research, and education in shoulder and elbow, I think it's a reasonable trade-off. There are some people who are trying to figure out ways um, to sort of reinstate a portion of that feeling, sort of uh, along the same model as the Herodica Society and the Sports Medicine Society. Um, I think we're a ways from that at this point. Um, but I, to your point, I am sure that you could find people in the membership of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons that truly miss that aspect of the meeting and might not even think it was worth changing. Um, but I think in the end, if our goal is really to, as our, as our, as our mission and vision states, to be uh, the dominant society for education, research, and clinical activity in the shoulder and elbow, uh, I don't think that there's any way to argue that we're in a better position to be that in our current form than we were um, of when we were the small society that we were. As, as important as that society was and as great as the feeling was to be a part of that society. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I that's certainly the way that sports has managed this with Herodicus. It's the way that the hip and knee surgeons have managed it with the hip society and the knee society. Do you think that's the future? Is there going to be a near circle that's in the middle of the ASCS that has a separate meeting? Um, what tell me tell me what you think is going to happen there? You have so much well, experience with the organization. That's a tough one. 
that's a tough one. I think the challenge, at least this is just my opinion. It's not anything that anybody has told me. But the challenge for me is try to look at it from the standpoint of a person that might not be in that inner circle, right? They joined the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons finally because the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons saw fit to include them as somebody who's a really um, enthusiastic practitioner of American Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. Imagine now that you then tell this patient next year, there's going to be a, a, a portion of this organization that's going to be like a little clique. Only they can meet with each other. You can't meet with them. Um, I mean, I think the rub is that there's at least the chance that you could make it feel like there's two classes of people or at least two classes of people in the shoulder, American shoulder and elbow surgeons. Um, and I think that's a tough hurdle to get over, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, this, again, just my gut feeling. I think there will be a near circle that had, there will be criteria for you to be in it, and it will not necessarily be a really tight, close society as, as much as it would be a portion of our society that is looked at for certain um, input on issues that are really important. Um, and maybe that would happen, but I, I find it difficult to see how we're going to do something like a Herodica Society um, and have and keep together the um, collegiality that we currently have with the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons. I could be wrong, um, and in some ways I hope I am, because um, I really do miss uh, the closed meeting. It was a very special meeting. Um, I've just looked at it as sort of the price you pay for wanting to maintain your dominance in the field as the field gets larger. Do you think today's environment is different too? I mean, I um, certainly one of the things that I think has changed about our culture generally is that exclusivity is um, it doesn't have the same sheen that it used to have, maybe perhaps you might say. Certainly there's been such a push for diversity and equity and inclusivity. And do you think that that's part of what's happening to our society or do you think it's largely about making sure that we represent everyone in our field? Well, I think I think it is part of our society, but I, I, I sort of feel like it was done by design. Um, I, I mean, you know, look at the competition that we have to try to provide education in the shoulder and elbow arena and, and to attract people to shoulder and elbow who are, you know, the best of the best and going to provide the best care possible. And let's say part of our mission is to make sure that the level of care that happens with shoulder and elbow problems gets as high as it can possibly be, partly because of what we do. Um, I, I think by definition, it's very difficult to do that without touching a lot of lives in people who teach and do shoulder and elbow surgery. And that was hard to do when we had a membership of 150 people or even when it was 300 people. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And I do think the world has changed to a certain extent. And that's one of the reasons why the change with the ASCS, I think, occurred when it did. Uh, because um, I think the European Shoulder and Elbow Society, for example, and sports medicine and ANA and others uh, we're usurping our uh, role as leaders in education um, in shoulder and elbow surgery. And I think by becoming larger and more inclusive, I think we did restake our claim 
to being, if not the top, one of the top two or three organizations in the world uh, that educates people on the topics of shoulder and elbow surgery. Dr. Williams, one of the questions Pete and I like to ask as we get toward the end of the podcast, especially to our, our superstars of the field, which which you certainly are and beyond, um, is if you could have dinner with anyone from history, we were wondering who that person would be and where in Philly would you have dinner? Well, for me, you know, I've been asked that question before. So I know who that would be for me. We were Winston Churchill. And I'm trying to think where we would have dinner. Uh, boy, that's a tough one. I'd probably have dinner just at a place that I really like. Uh, I belong to a club called the Union League, um, and it was founded um, in support of Abraham Lincoln and the, and the Union, the American Union, uh, and its motto is Love of Country Leads. So I might have it at the restaurant that is called 1862 within that organization. But, you know, if I think back in history and I think of the one person and if there, I mean, if you did, if you were told you had to think of one person that really had one of the strongest effects on the world, on, on making the world the way that we're living in it today, I think it was Winston Churchill. Um, I think that it's hard to argue um, that there's a pretty good chance that the that the West would have lost the war without him. Um, and it took great courage uh, to to do what he did at the time that he did it. Um, and I'd love to pick his brain about what his thoughts were um, and what went through his mind during those times. So for me, it would be Winston Churchill, and I would probably have dinner with him at Restaurant 1862 at the Union Link. Well, Dr. Williams, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast and to hear reflections on the way things have changed over time with our society. I, I think everyone on the society um, really owes you a debt of gratitude for the way you've led us through some difficult decisions. And I really appreciate you reflecting upon them today because it's useful for us to understand that history as we go forward. Well, I'll be honest with you. It was an honor for me to participate in the podcast. And quite frankly, uh, the way that I looked at my involvement with American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons and also the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is I was fortunate enough to be the steward of the organization as president for a year. Um, and really, I look at that um, as really one of the two of those things, the president of ASCS and the president of the academy, of two of the most important uh, things professionally in my life that I've had a chance to do. And I was really just fortunate to be able to do it. And I'm, I'm very grateful. Well, Dr. Williams, we want to thank you so much. That's really all the time we have for this podcast. We want to thank again, Dr. Williams, for joining us. And for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank. We'll see you next time. Thank you, guys.